So we are still in Ezekiel. What we finished last time is Ezekiel 23, and that was the allegory of the two sisters, their names being Ahola and Aholabah. One of them means a tent, and the other one is my tent is in her. So Aholabah was Jerusalem because God's tent was in Jerusalem, and Ahola was Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom. And the point of that chapter is, of course, continuing description of the prostitution of Israel. But the big thing to take away from it that God says is when he dealt with Ahola, which is to say the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom should have gotten a clue. They didn't. And instead they got worse. He explicitly says they should have paid attention to what happened to their sister and repented, and of course they don't. So what we have tonight is going to be the siege of Jerusalem, and depending on how far we get, we're going to talk about some of the nations around Judah and what's going on with them. So Ezekiel 24, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Stop there for a minute. The ninth year and the tenth month is of the exile of the king of Judah. So that's the reference point, if you will. In the secular calendar, it's middle of January, 588 B.C. So that's where you are secularly. The ninth of Av, Tishabayav, when the Babylonians destroy the second temple, is going to be somewhere around August of 586 B.C. What that means is Nebuchadnezzar is going to besiege Jerusalem for about two and a half years before he actually destroys it. So the idea here is that God is marking the day when the siege of Jerusalem began. And as I said, according to my commentary, it's January 15th of 588 B.C. And we know from history that two and a half years later, the temple will be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So you have about a two-year siege, two and a half-year siege that's going to happen here. Verse 3. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on. Pour in water also. Put in pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock. Pile the logs under it. Boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. This takes you back to chapter 11 of Ezekiel. And the metaphor is of Jerusalem being a pot. Back in chapter 11, what you had were false prophets saying Jerusalem was like an iron kettle, if you will, or a brass kettle, and we are protected by being inside of this metal kettle and nobody's going to be able to get to us. In other words, they're looking at the walls of Jerusalem as being a protective pot, and they are false prophets. So what God is doing here in 24 is he's taking them back to that same metaphor. 
And the idea, all right, you remember, you guys said that you're going to be safe in the pot. What I'm telling you is, no, you're not going to be safe in the pot. And furthermore, the pot itself is going to be destroyed. So that is the metaphor that's going on here. And the thing is, obviously, don't be confused about the two pots of Jerusalem, because one of them is regarded as being security by false prophets. The other one is regarded as being the place where you're going to get boiled up and die. So, verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. Again, the idea here is not only is the pot not safe, the pot itself is corrupt. And you all remember from the Torah that when dead things fall into vessels, very often the vessel has to be destroyed. In other words, the vessel becomes corrupt. Now that's for unglazed pottery. It is not for metal vessels. But you, again, you get the idea here. When he says that the vessel itself is corroded, you should think, what do you do when something dies in an uncovered pot? You have to break the pot. Not quite the same, but they would get the idea here of a corrupt vessel no longer being able to be used. That would be a metaphor that they would understand. So back to verse 6 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion or scum is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. Several things going on here. First off, the idea of fishing people out of there without choice. I am assuming the metaphor there is people are going to be killed without regard to station. It's not the case that just the common soldier is going to be killed or the nobles or whatever. Everybody's going to wind up getting killed. There's no choice or differentiation among them. The other thing is the blood she has shed is on her midst. She put it on a bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. Now, this is kind of a strange metaphor because if you remember when an animal is slaughtered, not ritually slaughtered, but just out on a farm, what it says to do is you pour the blood out on the ground so that the blood absorbs and you cover it up with dust. The idea here is that the blood that has been shed in her midst has not been properly taken care of, but we're talking about human blood in any case. So there isn't anything really good you can do with human blood that you have shed unjustly. Furthermore, remember we just read the story of Cain and Abel last week, and God said, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So you get sort of the idea here that they have unjustly slaughtered people, and that goes clear back with the stuff we have read, and that they have done it sort of brazenly. 
the blood is on a rock where everybody can see it as opposed to in the ground where it can be overlooked, if you will. Take you back to Exodus. One of the things that Rabbi Foreman was talking about with respect to Exodus is the Egyptians, when they decreed the death of newborn boys, they didn't kill them. They commanded them to be cast into the Nile. And what happens in that case is you don't have any blood. You don't have any corpses. You don't have any blood. You don't have any grave you can visit. It's just as if he was never there. Which, of course, is why the Nile is turned into blood. Because, of course, God knows what's happened. And what he's saying is your attempt to commit a crime with no evidence has failed. The people for whom there is no evidence, or for whom it's important that there's no evidence, is the Egyptian population. The Hebrews know what happened. It's sort of like the good Germans in Nazi Germany who had no idea where those trains were going that were taking people off to the concentration camps. No funerals, no bodies, no blood, no evidence. As far as we know, these are just freight trains going through town. So the method of slaughtering the children was deliberately chosen for that reason. So now back to Ezekiel. The idea here is that the blood has been shed and it's out there on a bare rock. It's not being absorbed into the ground. It's not being hidden. It's flagrant right out there in front of everybody. It is not something they're trying to conceal. In a sense, it's something they're proud of. Pick it up on 7 again. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. They had it out there flagrantly, and so what God is doing is he's saying, all right, there it is. There's no way that this is going to be hidden. Verse 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, let the bones be burned up. All right, there's two translations of verse 10. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, and mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. That's one way of saying it. That's the English Standard Version translation. You can also read it, instead of mix in the spices, pour out the broth. So the idea there would be, what you do is you cook this meat and stuff up into a broth, you pour the broth out and you put the pot back on the fire so that there isn't any water to boil off and keep the pot cool. It's sort of like if any of you have ever forgotten something that you left on the stove and it boiled dry, that's the metaphor if the translation is pour out the broth as opposed to mix in the spices. But the deal is let the bones be burned up. 
So in any case, you keep it on the fire until all the liquid is gone and the bones and the stuff inside are burned up. And remember this in terms of the metaphor from the false prophets. We're going to be in this pot. The pot's going to protect us. We're all going to be in here together. We're going to be safe. That was the metaphor in chapter 11. Metaphor here is you're all in the pot. Yep, sure are. But the pot is going to be left on the fire and everything in the pot is going to be burned up. And then, of course, the next thing that's going to happen is the pot itself is going to be destroyed. Verse 11, And then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed or its scum consumed. So the idea here is the pot is Jerusalem. The people inside it are the Jews. First thing that's going to happen is they're all going to be burned up and die, and then the next thing that's going to happen is the city is going to be destroyed, which is exactly what happened under Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12, she has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it. Into the fire with its corrosion. The idea is Jerusalem itself has become a defiled vessel. And the only solution for a defiled vessel is to destroy it. 13. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. The idea would have been if you had listened to what happened to your sister, Israel, Samaria, and you had repented, I would have cleansed you, but you didn't. So now what's going to happen is you're going to be cleansed by fire and everything is going to be burned up and destroyed. Verse 14, I am the Lord. I have spoken it. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God from God's perspective, which is the correct perspective, this is measure for measure. So now we have the death of Ezekiel's wife. Being a prophet is tough duty. Basically, the only comfort and companionship he's got is his own wife because everybody else is sort of against him. And now she is going to be taken from him. So verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Covering the lips, that happens twice in this chapter. And I don't know if that's a sign of mourning, I just have no idea. My commentary doesn't say anything about it. It appears to be an outward sign of mourning. I just don't know what the custom is. Verse 18. So I spoke to the people in the morning. At evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. Like I say, being a prophet is really tough duty. Because what God has done is used the death of his wife as yet another 
performance piece prophecy. Remember, he lies on one side for a while and bakes his food on dung fire and all of these things he's acted. Well, here God has used the death of his wife in the same way. Verse 19, And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus? In other words, everybody notices that he's put on a turban, put on his shoes, and he's walking among the people even though his wife has died when the culture would expect him to mourn. And quite frankly, I think he would want to be mourning. The only reason he's not is because he was told not to. Verse 20, Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. What's happening is the prophet is silently mourning his wife with no outward show. And what God is saying is, all right, just as the prophet has lost the thing that he delights in, so too you are going to lose the thing that you delight in, which is the temple. Verse 22, And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your head, and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Obviously, the idea here is just as I am mourning my wife, you're going to mourn the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and you're not going to be able to express your sorrow any more than I can. The people he's talking to are exiles in Babylon. They are not people who are in Jerusalem who are going through this destruction. You remember from Jeremiah, there was a movement among the exiles in Babylon saying, Let's rebel and get out of here. And Jeremiah sends them a letter and says, calm down. You're going to be there for 70 years. Don't rebel. Don't do anything to make your life harder. It'll be 70 years. Deal with it. So there's communication back and forth. But the point is, the exiles, as we've said over and over again, don't fully comprehend why they're there. And they very much expect and hope that they will be able to somehow get back to Jerusalem and the temple. And what's happening here is that Jerusalem and the temple are being destroyed. So in the same sense that Ezekiel has lost his wife, so too they are losing the hope of going back where they came from. So 23 again. Your turban shall be on your head and your shoes on your feet, and you shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. By the way, this is a formula. The word of the Lord came to me, and at the end of it, you will know that I am the Lord. You see that bracket, if you will. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me, and then a prophecy, and then so that you will know that I am the Lord God. 25. 
As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. What's going to happen is Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Somebody is going to flee from the destruction, is going to come to Babylon, and is going to report what happened. When that happens, Ezekiel is going to be released from the pantomime that he is going through. And then he will be allowed to mourn. He'll no longer be mute. So 25, we're going to have prophecies against surrounding peoples. What you're going to have is Ammon, then Moab, then Edom. And then you're going to have Tyre. That's sort of the order of things. Each one of these is going to be excoriated by God for piling on to Jerusalem. God sends Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sands the place flat, and the people around take advantage of that. They wind up harassing the Jews that are trying to flee, probably enslaving some of them, killing some of them. They wind up looting, and God is unhappy. Now, to remind you of something you already know, if you look at the family tree, if you will, you've got Terah up here, then you've got Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Lot is the son of Haran, who died. So when Abraham comes down, brings his nephew with him. And you remember that when they come up out of Egypt, they both got flocks and herds, and their herdsmen can't live together. So they split. And Abram stays on the central ridge of Israel, and Lot goes into the valley of the Dead Sea. Lot winds up, of course, being the only one spared from the destruction of Sodom. And he flees and takes his two daughters with him. And that's all he's got, himself and his two daughters. And then the two daughters get him tipsy and get pregnant by him. And that's Moab and Ammon. Edom is the brother of Jacob. That's Esau. So what you've got then is Ammon and Moab, which are, if you will, cousins. And then you've got Edom who is, again, more like a brother. So Edom is closer, but they're all descendants of Terah. So they're all related, is what I'm driving at here. So, chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha! over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. They shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit. They shall drink your milk. I will make Rabah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord, 
For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Back to some history. During the United Kingdom under David, David had all of these people around under tribute. And so David and Solomon, when they were kings over a united Israel, all of these surrounding nations were under the thumb of Israel. As Israel split in half and fell into squabbling and all that, these folks broke off. But they never forgot that at one point they had been conquered and under tribute by Israel. So when Israel gets clobbered, they're going, yay, get them Babylonians. And God says, ah, that's not right. So that's sort of what's going on here. So down to verse 8. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshimon, Beth Maon, and Kirath Adam. I will give it along with, with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession. People of the east are the Amorites. That the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgment upon Moab, then they will know that I am the Lord. So again, Ammon and Moab are cousins. They are both grandsons of Lot. So they're theoretically close. Both have the same attitude toward Judah when it goes down. So then we get Edom. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended at taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. I will make it desolate, from Teman even to Dedan, and they shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now, this I don't entirely understand. I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. That may be Israel returning after Babylon, and Edom is Esau, who is Jacob's brother. And then finally here in this chapter, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Now, Philistines were in the land before Joshua. Philistines were along the coast. The Israelites were in the Central Ridge originally. The Philistines were finally conquered by David. Up until David, they were very often oppressing Israel. 
They were a military people. They were on the plain. They had chariots. And up until the time of David, they sort of traded back and forth. Sometimes the Philistines were over the Israelites, sometimes the other way around. Remember the thing about the Philistines is Joshua was commanded to wipe them out, root and branch. So when Israel didn't do that, the Philistines continued to be a thorn in the flesh, just like God said they would be. So whenever Israel is down, if you will, the Philistines rise up and take advantage of the situation. It was that way from Joshua on. So the idea here is Philistines are acting just like Philistines, and God is saying, I will at some point clean them out. Let me give you a preview of what's going on with Tyre, and we'll stop. So we finished chapter 25, and I'll repeat this next time probably, so if you don't get it the first time, you'll get it again. Tyre, of course, is a Phoenician city. The Phoenicians are the first nation to develop blue water sailing. Mediterranean naval commerce was always in sight of land. So if you wanted to go from Egypt to Italy, you sort of had to go around in Israel and that kind of thing. The Phoenicians developed the ability to sail straight across. Tyre, which is the capital city of the Phoenician Empire, was a major trading center, much like Babylon in Revelation, where when Babylon is destroyed, all the ship captains are sitting offshore, mourning. Tyre is the same way. Major trading center. During the time of David and Solomon, they were allies. Remember, Hiram was king of Tyre. And Hiram would send laborers. He would send cedars from Lebanon. And so there was a robust alliance between Israel and Tyre during the time of Solomon and David. In a trading sense, Israel had control over the caravan routes between Africa and Eurasia. Tyre had control over the maritime routes across the Mediterranean. So in a sense, they could either be competitors or allies. Now, what happened is after the United Kingdom, when Israel fell, Tyre then seized an opportunity to take over the land caravan routes as well as the sea routes and increase its wealth. That's what's going on here in the next couple of chapters as God is going after Tyre. And you sort of need to understand the history and the geography and the economics of it to understand what the deal is. And we'll talk about that next time. Nebuchadnezzar tries to take Tyre, fails. Alexander the Great finally does. Tyre had two cities. You had the island fortress, which is just a short distance off the shore. You also had the port city in Lebanon, right across the estuary. Nebuchadnezzar did destroy the port city in Lebanon, but he couldn't get 
the island, and, and of course, the Phoenicians had a navy, and the navy could keep them supplied. When Alexander finally took it, what Alexander did is built a causeway from the shore out to the island, and the island is no longer there. He destroyed the thing, and it was never rebuilt. Anyway, that's what we'll do next time. <laughs>